0: Welcome to Ship It, a podcast about ops, infrastructure, and databases. Ben Johnson, the creator of Lightstream, joined Fly.io a few weeks after we migrated changelog.com. Episode 50 has all the details. That was pure coincidence. What was not a coincidence is me jumping in the opportunity to talk to Ben about PostgreSQL versus SQLite with Lightstream. The prospect of running a cluster of our application instances spread across all regions SQLite and Livestream replication blows my mind. Let's find out from Ben what will it take to get there. As for Fastly, in the last 28 days their global CDN served 1.3 million changelog mp3 responses with minimal latency. Check out what they can do for you at fastly.com.
1: This episode is brought to you by Sentry. Build better software, faster, diagnose, fix, and optimize the performance of your code. More than a million developers in 68,000 organizations already use Sentry, and that includes us. Here's the easiest way to try Sentry. Head to sentry.io slash demo slash sandbox. That is a fully functional version of Sentry that you can poke at. And best of all, our listeners get the team plan for free for three months. Head to Sentry.io and use the code SHIPIT when you sign up again. Sentry.io and use the code SHIPIT.
2: We are going to ship three, two, one.
0: So happy to be welcoming you to ShipIt. You have no idea. I've been looking forward to this since you joined Fly.io. Welcome. Well, oh, thanks
2: for having me. I'm stoked to be on here and chat about, you know, infrastructure and all that fun
0: stuff. Yeah. So I'll go straight into it. What made you join Fly.io?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. So I mean, so I, I have a project called Lightstream, where it, it basically does replication of SQLite databases. It kind of puts them up to uh, S3, so you can kind of run a single node safely because I, you mm-hmm. know, most of the small projects I have tend to be real small and or even medium size, and they don't get like hundreds of requests per second that are writing in. They're like you know in the tens of requests or one you know or less requests. Mm-hmm. So I started going down that road, and I just kept finding that you know I wanted to find like a place where I could deploy out applications easily, but also had persistent disks, basically like Heroku, but with persistent disks. Mm -hmm. And everyone kept recommending Fly. So I just started, they just kept kind of coming up in conversations. And then we kind of, you know, just chatting with them, we kind of realized we were kind of going down kind of the same road Mm -hmm. where like, they want to kind of build compute and just make it really easy to run stuff. And they don't want to have to worry about, you know, storage if they don't have to like, you know, storage and state are always like the most painful thing to deal with. And if they could just like make it super simple for people to ignore that more or less, that'd be great. And that's kind of my goal too, is I want to make it so that the storage stuff is, you know, as invisible as possible. I mean, obviously state kind of sucks, but you got to deal with it and minimizing that
0: pain is the the idea. Right. So they were thinking along the same lines as you were thinking when it comes to storage, when it comes to keeping things simple and you just hit it off.
2: Yeah. And like, I think that you know, nobody like I don't have anything against Postgres. Like I think Postgres is great. Mm-hmm. It's super advanced database. He has all kinds of features, but you know, most of the applications I write, you know, use a tiny fraction of the potential of uh, Postgres. And I find that I really love like I used to work in embedded databases a lot. I wrote wrote a, a library called BoltDB TV in the Go community. Mm-hmm. It's pretty uh pretty popular. And there's a stark difference between like writing with an embedded database where everything is super snappy because all of your data is just like nanoseconds away from you whereas yeah. when you have the to connect do a query to postgres you know if you're even in the same region in aws it can be like a full millisecond to do a round trip for a single query so mm-hmm. you know there's this kind of different dynamic when you write applications with a embedded database and i kind of miss the sql side and a lot of that nice management stuff yeah. so sqlite seemed like a good middle ground between like raw key value store embedded database that i had and like a giant Postgres server. So mm. yeah, kind of landed there and they kind of had the same feeling like not everyone needs Postgres. Like a lot of people don't need Postgres and it can be a lot of overhead management. And if you don't need
0: that, then you know SQLite's an awesome alternative. Yeah. Again, Postgres SQL, okay, we, we will come back to this because uh, I mm-hmm. still I still don't think we have finished with that Fly.io story. And the reason why we haven't is because soon after changelog.com migrated to fly.io you joined Fly.io, and I didn't know about it. I was like, what? (laughs) No way. (laughs) Ben joined, Ben, like the Lightstream Ben joined (laughs) Fly.io. That's just unbelievable. It's not just Changelog (laughs) is running on the Fly.io infrastructure, but Ben is also on the team. And you wrote that blog post, all in on SQLite Lightstream. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed reading that, and I just just couldn't believe it. So we had Mark Erickson in episode 51, Mm -hmm. and I was thinking, right, I have to talk to Ben for episode 59. And this is it, just before the Kaizen. So the timing, I mean, I just honestly, I just like couldn't make that up. You know, like some things, they they just happen. I think serendipity is is how some people call it. And I don't think I'm seeing what I want to see because it's real, right? You joined it. (laughs) Uh, You joined Flow.i, you're there. And you wrote that blog post I had no idea about. And what you wrote in the end really, really resonated with me. So choose any four, can you tell us a bit about that? What are the four and why can you choose all of them? Because it sounds too good to be true. <laughs>
2: well, i to think back to the, what the four were now.
0: <laughs> small, fast, reliable, and globally distributed. How can you have oh, all sure. four? That's just not possible.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, the first three are kind of uh, SQLite's kind of mantra of, you know, keep it fast, small, and, you know, easy. And then, mm-hmm. The globally globally distributed part you know the way that i think about it is like the thing that i like about sqlite is that it's almost like a a nice building block for a distributed Mm -hmm. system like it has a lot of really cool stuff built into it it just kind of needs that like you know all those fun little distributed systems algorithms that kind of distribute and merge and you know control data and the Mm -hmm. flow of all that stuff if you can kind of shim that in underneath it and do it as invisibly as possible then you know for a lot of applications, it really works well, where you don't have, obviously, it depends on restrictions you have for your database. Like, if you need a ton of concurrency or write concurrency specifically, then, you know, there can be trade-offs with SQLite. but there's other ways to get around that as well. Mm-hmm. So if you have, like, one interesting thing that a lot of people are asking for is they want to really segment their users. So maybe they have a SaaS and maybe they have a thousand users. Instead of having one big database with a thousand users and all their data in it that mixes together, they say like, "Hey, why can't I not just build a database per user? They're totally isolated, and for a lot of companies, that's really important that you don't accidentally like miss a where clause and suddenly you're yeah. spewing out other users' data." You know, and I think you know once you look at something like that, you know, whereas you had maybe write you know write concurrency issues for one big database, if you split it out into a thousand little ones, you don't really have those same kind of concurrency issues. Yeah. You can write into them in parallel and. They don't actually have really anything to do with each other.
0: So I'm wondering, I mean, you're touching on on so many interesting points, but the one which just, it just reminded me of a conversation, which I had maybe a few days ago, this was with Alex Sims. We had him on episode 49. We talked about this e-commerce platform, actually fulfillment, logistics fulfillment platform. And there's this problem of a main database, a main, let's say a primary, which is the writer. And there's only one and then you have like lots of readers but if you have Mm -hmm. to do any writes from different parts of the world you have to go through this one primary and latency is a pain i want to use a different word but i'm going to use pain so in that (laughs) word (laughs) in that world in that world how could sqlite help i mean sorry in, in in that architecture how could sqlite help because I'm thinking cell-based architectures, and I know that AWS did a lot of work around that. Are you thinking the same thing, or is it something different?
2: It's really more like I mean, yeah, the right latency, you know, can be painful if you come in from across the world. Mm-hmm. But I think there's probably an, it depends on your application again. But like a lot of people have an expectation that if they go and they they look around at a website, an e-commerce website, and they look at a different bunch of different pages, if all those like product pages and the searches and all that are super fast and they're read only. Those can be replicated down to the edge and you can really like get the absolute best performance there. But I think people have an expectation that when they go to actually check out that having an extra like, you know, 100 milliseconds or 200 milliseconds isn't the biggest deal, especially as a trade-off if you have fast read latency. So I I don't find that to be like a big issue to put the primary in a single location. That being said, if you wanted to, you could, I mean, because SQLite is so lightweight, you could have primaries for some users in one part of the world and primaries for another, you know, in a different part Mm -hmm. of the world. And it's pretty easy to kind of move those around and segment them. Right. Especially around like GDPR as well. If you have people-
0: Oh, yes. Have have restrictions around that. Okay, okay. Yeah. We have to slow down <laughs> with the big topics because each of those, they just like deserve like I don't know, like at least like five minutes worth of discussion, five ten minutes worth yeah. of discussion. A GDPR and TRAMS. Okay, coming back to the primary and coming back to having a single source of truth. I know that some setups, and especially when you have like a logistic supply chain, you need to know where items are regardless where they are in the world. And you have to have a single unified view of where things are. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't, like, how do you reconcile that, right? I mean, it's a single company. Yeah. It's a single, you know, like organization, single system. And they may have different fulfillment centers around the world, but they still need to have like a unified view. And when you move items across like units, you say, okay, this unit moves from here to here. You need to have a transaction that, you know, it doesn't... Mm-hmm it just it just avoids like all sorts of like weird things happening in the system data getting corrupted you know units being in two places at once weird things like like that so are there ways that you can have primaries which are closer to you or basically can you do writes which are lower latency that would avoid having a single primary
2: um i mean you could i mean you start getting into like eventual consistency stuff mm-hmm. because if you have like a, a multi primary or what used to be called multi-master then you know you really get that issue where you have you can have two records change at the same time and you have to merge those in some way yeah and SQLite has some built-in stuff around that there's a thing called a session extension mm-hmm. where you can actually pull out kind of like a, a change log or like a diff of your data and you can send that to another database but honestly that comes with like a whole host of issues and like you're probably a lot better off sharding before doing any of that if it's possible and you know ultimately like you can I think like a lot of problems are shardable, which is really nice. Like if you work in a SaaS, if you work in like all kinds of stuff, those are usually really shardable. But if you have like just a giant database <laughs> where everyone has to have access to it and in real time and like do multiple concurrent writes, you know, SQLite might not be a great fit for that. If you really need that concurrent write stuff, mm-hmm. you know, it, it does have a really quick writes. So if you can do a lot of really tiny, small writes, those are great. But if you have long running ones, that can that'll block other writers. So i don't have a solution for you yeah that's great
0: (laughs) i know that that is a hard problem for sure and i know that like google spanner keeps coming up and they say oh we solved this problem and again i haven't looked close enough to to know like what are the trade-offs because there's always trade-offs everything is solved as long as you're willing to put up with the trade-offs and most people when they start getting into they say "Whoa, whoa 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 this is too complicated i'm not doing that like no way
2: i haven't looked at how they do a a multi-primary but like I know you can look into stuff like optimistic locking, where you know you might change a row and then hopefully another system doesn't change it at the same time, and then Mm -hmm. you can back it out later. Or you know, there's different ways of doing it, but yeah, that just sounds like a pain if you don't have to deal with it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, for sure, for sure. Okay, so the reason why I was very excited to talk to you is because when we moved to Flat.io, one thing which we did we changed our PostgreSQL from running it in Kubernetes to Mm -hmm. it being like almost managed in Fly. No, it's, like it's it's not like fully, fully managed, but it's yeah. very easy to set it up. It's easy to set up replicas. It's easy to do all of that. Now, PostgreSQL, I mean, that's, again, the topic for the next Kaizen, episode 60, is how do we go from a single instance of the changelog app to multiple instances? Because Erlang yeah. was was made to be run in a distributed fashion, right? It was made yeah. for clustering. And it has this Mm -hmm. concept, it's first class in the Erlang runtime, the concept of a cluster. So with that, if you have multiple instances and they're like spread around the world, then if the database is in a single place, it just makes things a bit more difficult. So I was wondering, is there a way that we could use SQLite with Lightstream to have copies of the database, which are basically sitting right next to the apps, or maybe even with the apps? I'm thinking with the apps, right? Of course, with the apps.
2: Yeah. So yeah, I mean, so the upcoming release of Lightstream, we have read replicas coming in there. So essentially you have a single primary and then other replicas connect out to it and stream them down. And yeah. that works for a lot of situations uh, where you just need to sp- you know span out or what is it, uh, scale your reads, or mm-hmm. you want to have local reads on replicas. So it'd be a good fit for that. The one downside right now to Lightstream, and actually it's ironic that I'm at Fly, <laughs> is that... When you have to restart the primary, it has to, mm-hmm. we do, you can't switch a primary right now. It, it always stays at the same node. So you have write down time when you switch over, but we're actually, we're kind of working on We kind of learned a lot of lessons from Lightstream. We're kind of revamping it a bit and making mm-hmm. it so we can do kind of like have the primary move, have a lot of this stuff kind of just invisible to you underneath. So essentially you should just kind of get a directory that you can write your SQLite databases there and they just magically appear on all nodes at the same
0: time. <laughs> So currently, the setup that you would recommend with SQLite and Lightstream is having a primary, which is like where all the writes happen, and then having read replicas. Is that right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Or if you just, if you don't even need the read replication, I mean, just having a single node works for a lot of apps too. Mm-hmm. The main downside right now is if you, when you restart, you know, you'll have downtime during the restart. It was originally mm-hmm. built more for like a VPS where you have, A single server that's always running and whenever you kind of deploy you just kind of restart that app real quick but you Mm -hmm. can keep running lightstream in the background so you know a lot of people moving obviously to you know Dockerized deployments and you have a lot more of these kind of restarts so we're kind of taking everything we've learned from lightstream in the past and kind of
0: revamping to kind of address that new world you know okay so just to understand this correctly currently today if we were to use sqlite with lightstream And we would have to, we would push an update that would roll. In this case, Mm -hmm. the app instance would bring a new one up. Would there be downtime? Yeah, Yeah. currently there would be downtime while you roll. Yeah. Interesting. How difficult would it be to set up a read replica as the application is booting and then promote the read replica to be the writer after it starts?
2: I wouldn't say it's super easy (laughs) right now. I mean, it certainly can be done, you know, but kind of the focus of what we're doing right now is really more to, there's kind of a lot of lessons learned. We kind of wanted to revamp certain parts to make a lot of this easier. Mm-hmm. You know, one piece you're talking about, like Elixir, you know, we want to be able to push, one issue that we actually have with Lightstream and read replicas is that, sure, you can push data down to the read replicas, but if you have something that needs to notify users when an event changed, like a user updated, or, you know, some kind of event happened and needs used to recheck the database, there's not really a mechanism for that right now. So we're trying to build part of that in as well so that, you know, data changes on the primary, it can basically set kind of a notification to let all the other replicas know that maybe a new user came in and they can update that. And if they need to stream down data in real time, they can as well. Right. Okay. So instead of putting time, I guess, instead of putting time to try to make the current read replicas kind of switch over and whatnot, we're we're kind of, yeah, we're just kind of revamping it a bit.
0: So that should be available here in the next couple of months. Really? Okay, interesting. So do you know how it, how it's going to work? I mean, do you have like an idea of how we're going to, like, what does the solution to no downtime look like? In your example, you have a primary writer and you have mm-hmm. um, a number of read replicas. Rather than promoting a read replica to a writer, what would you do differently?
2: That That is what it is the new system is doing. Uh, but right, we're, we're okay. kind of revamping how like Lightstream works entirely. So it has currently, currently right now, it kind of just pushes up the the write ahead log from mm-hmm. SQLite, so it basically take a snapshot on a regular basis. So by default, it'll do it every day, like every 24 hours, and then from that snapshot, it'll do every single wall page after that. You know, we can press them down, and right now it ships it up to S3, or mm-hmm. you know, in the near future, it ships it down to read replicas, and then if you ever have. You know, like a, a node fails, and you need to replay everything. You can just grab the latest snapshot, replay all the wall in between, and then you know you can do like point in time restores as well. So the down, you know, downside obviously to all of that is that if you have a lot of writes in between your snapshots, then it can take a little while to download the snapshot and redo all, re- all the replay. So you know, some of the lessons learned around that is you know figuring out a better format than just the the regular wall file that SQLite has, uh, so we can do more stuff around like encryption. We can do stuff around compacting wall files. So we can actually compact them down and kind of a minimum set on interval. So if you wanted to mm-hmm. do point in time restores to some point every, say, five minutes or half hour, uh, we can do that and they're nearly instant. So it's, you know, just trying to take a lot of the, the little bits and bobs that people, you know, complained about and find better solutions for those.
0: Nice, nice. So who are the people driving those improvements? Do you have users that's that, that give you suggestions on how to do this like what what does that look like that that process of you know people helping you improve this aspect of lightstream and how it interacts with sqlite
2: yeah i mean a lot of people either go through uh, like github and log issues we have pretty pretty decent sized slack for lightstream i think it's a couple hundred people now Mm -hmm. and people are People are very excited to use SQLite. <laughs> like people just love SQLite. It's, I got to say, if you're ever going to make like an open source project that like builds on something else, find something that like builds on SQLite because people love it. Okay. But you know, it's like, uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of people that just have ideas of how they can simplify their stack and just, you know, not worry about all the different like, Postgres settings and like setting your your HPA for your, like your user access and all the little different tweaks and whatnot. And worrying about like PG Bouncer and all those things, mm-hmm. you just kind of like, Run it and it just works more or less. There's a couple little settings you got to set on there to, to use it well, but there's, I you mean, know, it's just like one or two, like setting the wall and things like that.
0: Okay. I think I know what you're, how you're going to answer this, but still, let's assume that I'll be wrong. <laughs> Why sure. do people love SQLite?
2: I think people have a frustration with having so many dependencies out there mm-hmm. where just everything always requires like just way too much. This is just way too much like headspace that everything takes up. And you're not actually like building your application. You're like reading docs for Redis or for some, like some caching system or some load balancer or whatever. And like the idea of just like actually writing your app and like the database is there and it just works and it's super solid, but you know, it's not, you know, Mm -hmm. I think I looked up, I think in that blog post I wrote, you know, Postgres has like, I think their documentation is like three or 4,000 pages in a PDF. Mm -hmm. Like it's crazy, which is great. I mean, it's, you know it does everything but at the same time it's a lot to keep in your head so i think that's really the really reason people love it if they have an application that works for it then
0: you know it's it feels great to use i remember when i got into rails development ages ago and by default ruby and rails the framework was using sqlite in development mode and it was glorious like there was like this <laughs> thing you install it you run it and everything just works That was like such an aha moment. I was like, yes, everything should be this simple. Well, not when you go into production, obviously, but then you would go like, why not? Like, why couldn't it be this simple? Because there are certain advancements in, for example, uh, uh, disks, storage, the IO uh, improvements. I mean, let's just like stop, like the IO improvements. I mean, you couldn't do things with regular disks 15 years ago, like the spinning disks that you can do today with SSDs. And... If people think that SSDs are fast, well, when you try like an Optane drive and you get like (laughs) hundreds of thousands of IOPS and you're like, what is this thing? It's like, it's like RAM (laughs) and it is like RAM, exactly. So the boundaries are blurring between RAM and disks. That's how fast they get. So surely that will change a few things, right?
2: Yeah, I think that like, you know, when you have over time, you know, you look at like 20 years ago. Between 20 years ago and today, like, you know, it's not like things have gotten like twice as fast. It's like mm-hmm. multiple orders of magnitude faster. And then, you know, back then it might have made sense, you know, you're like, oh, Postgres can run 10 or 20% faster than you know, SQLite, say. Mm-hmm. But you know, these days, when you already have like a 200 x improvement in speed of, you know, your disk or your CPU and whatnot, that actual little 10, you know, 10, 20% doesn't really make a big difference anymore. Not for everybody, obviously, you know, some people really need to eke out all the performance they can, but, you know, you start, it kind of opens up all these different possibilities for like simplifying your stack while it's still being fast enough. Mm -hmm. And actually, we're kind of getting in this weird place where it's not even the actual hardware that's slow anymore. It's the actual like speed of light where like you physically have to like jump through time and space to pull your data from somewhere else. And if you could just shorten that distance, which is basically what SQLite does, then you can, you know, you can get quite a bit faster. So when I did latency benchmarks between SQLite and Postgres, you know, for Postgres within even the same region, you know, different availability zones, maybe it could be up to a millisecond just to do a round trip of a a single, you know, like a select one. Mm -hmm. But then if you're doing, you know, locally with SQLite, just the overhead of getting that same query is about, you know, 20 microseconds, you know, 10 to 20 microseconds. So like You don't have to worry about things like N plus one queries so much anymore. You know, if you want to destructure your queries and make them more composable or, you know, just pull out a a smaller amount of data or not use an ORM, things like that, you know, it just, it changes the simplicity of your application in a lot of ways you don't really think about upfront.
0: I think, I think that's what it is. I mean, this feels like it changes everything, you know, like we thought that it wasn't possible and all of a sudden it is. I say all of a sudden, like in the last, I know five years, it is but people's mm-hmm. i mean many people still still think it's not possible and there are certain things which are hard because like without lightstream how would you run sqlite i mean you can run it but <laughs> no, it's yeah. very limited and <laughs> it actually is designed for it, it works for what it was designed to do and then lightstream enters and, and things just change that combined mm-hmm. with the disks combined with the networks the fast networks combined with like 128 CPUs sure that's normal these days you know you can get like you know hosts with 128 CPUs i've seen kurt post some screenshots from fly.io <laughs> for like some <laughs> of the servers and those those machines are crazy so mm-hmm. everything's local the networks are fast you have like the, the, those vpns like wireguard building everywhere yeah. that's nice and simple i mean that changes everything when it comes to you know having a private so there's like a bunch of things that work really well together and I was so excited when Lightstream just entered this space because it changed, it changed a bunch of things. And I was like, yes.
2: <laughs> yeah, there's been a, like a, an influx of tools lately that are just, it's nice to like move towards that simplicity that we've, we just feel like we've gotten so complex over the last decade or two. Mm.
1: This episode is brought to you by our friends at Fire Hydrant. Fire Hydrant is the reliability platform for every developer. Incidents, they impact everyone not just SREs. They give teams the tools to maintain service catalogs, respond to incidents, communicate through status pages, and learn with retrospectives. What would normally be manual error-prone tasks across the entire spectrum of responding to an incident, they can all be automated in every way with FireHydrant. They have incident tooling to manage incidents of any type with any severity with consistency, declare and mitigate incidents all from inside Slack, Service catalogs allow service owners to improve operational maturity and document all your deploys in your service catalog. Incident analytics allow you to extract meaningful insights about your reliability over any facet of your incident or the people who respond to them. And at the heart of it all, incident run books, they let you create custom automation rules, convert manual tasks into automated, reliable, repeatable sequences that run when you want you can create Slack channels, Jira tickets, Zoom bridges instantly after declaring an incident. Now your processes can be consistent and automatic. The next step is to try it free. Small teams, up to 10 people, can get started for free with all Fire Hydrant features included. No credit card is required. Get started at FireHydrant.io. Again, FireHydrant.io.
0: Why did you build Lightstream? Do you remember the day when you when when you thought, I know, I'm going to build this thing. (laughs) What was that like?
2: Oh, it wasn't like a single day necessarily. It was like originally, like I tried. I was like, you know what, Bolt DB, like running like an embedded database for your application development is just something people don't generally do. Like it's kind of weird, but I was like determined to like make application development work for an embedded database. And you know, I tried it. I tried like figuring out different schema. Things I could do with it. I did like protobufs. You could like encode into like a byte, you know, byte slice, and like put that into your database. Then you have to like make your own indexes, and it was such a pain. <laughs> so don't ever do that. But then you know, I came around. I was like, you know, what SQLite kind of is the nice middle ground. And I was originally originally trying to figure out how I could like hook into it. You know, they have there's a bunch of different options you can do. You can do it. They have like a, a VFS layer, a virtual file system layer, inside of SQLite. Mm -hmm. You can kind of inject calls into there and maybe you replicate those. You know, you could inject into a layer in the file system, like make a fuse file system, which is like a user space file system. You know, I tried to wait too many, (laughs) too many options before I finally like landed on Lightstream. And I even like started like porting SQLite code over to Go just to try to understand it better. That's like my way of learning code. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it just kind of struck me at one point. I think I was reading through some docs that like, you know, the the write ahead log, it basically... so Lightstream is kind of predicated on this like hack and it works, it's a good hack, but it's a hack nonetheless. Where Lightst- or SQLite, I have to explain a little bit about write-ahead logs real, real fast. So you have like a main Go database file and then whenever you make changes to that file, if you're in a write-ahead log mode, it'll actually write those changes. It'll pin them onto another file called the wall, write-ahead log. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, each change gets tied onto the end and then once it gets too large, it does a process called checkpointing, where checkpointing just basically copies all those pages back into the main database and then restarts the wall. So the kind of the idea around Lightstream was that in the docs, it says it can't, you know, SQLite can't do a, a checkpoint if there's any re-transaction, retransactions open because they might depend on that, write uh, ahead log. So what Lightstream does is it basically just opens a, a long running retransaction against the database and doesn't let go of it. So it blocks all the checkpointing and then manages the checkpoint itself like it'll take off that retransaction force a checkpoint you know relock it and it does a lot of consistency checks to make sure that you know the last page that it read off the wall is the same one as it did last time and it can kind of keep track of its position. So it basically keeps the wall going as long as it needs and then copies it out to a kind of a shadow background file mm-hmm. and then that gets replicated up to S3. So that's the hack right there. That, like, I guess the moment, if you want to know, is when I found out I could just, like, hack the uh, the checkpoint system and steal all the data. So,
0: wow. <laughs> not actually okay. seemed like, just... Yeah, I, I know what you mean. Wow. Yeah. So, it wasn't by accident. It was by trial and error, trying different things, seeing what sticks. And eventually you land across something which felt like, wow, this could work. And this is actually good.
2: Yeah, basically. And it was five or six iterations before I landed on what Lightstream is. And, you know, there's a lot of ways I you can do it, story. honestly. And there's another one called... I cannot pronounce the name. It's like vercul or I don't know. It's not like a SQLite replication thing. And they inject through the the virtual file system. So if you're using the, the non-wall journaling mode, it's called the rollback journal. They hook into that and they do it through the virtual file system. But, you know, that's an extra layer where you, can, you have to kind of build your application around that and you have to, you know, inject it in there in your application. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I like about Lightstream and kind of that external design is you can, you know, you can slap this against, any legacy system that uses SQLite and it just automatically works because your application really doesn't have to know about a lightstream it's like an operational concern, not a, a development concern.
0: okay so one area which I'm very intrigued about is the idea of an embedded database because Erlang and again Elixir, which is the language and it's a DSL language that Phoenix uses phoenix is the web framework that changelog.com uses and uh, chris mccord is also on the fly.io yeah, team he's, and, and yeah. he's the one that created it so again lots of great people coming together and there's there's a there's something there there's something to you know great people coming together i was just talking to frederick brancic uh, i think last week or something recently about mm-hmm. what happens when great people come together and that will be i think episode 57 i believe by the time we're listening to this it's not out yet but it will be by the time this goes out Embedded databases in Erlang. There's Nijad DB, and NinjaDB, I mean, hmm. it's often used and abused in in different systems because it wasn't. It was built for like thirty years ago. Systems which existed thirty years ago. The biggest user of Nijad DB is RabbitMQ, and that leads to some very interesting behavior in RabbitMQ clusters when there's lots and lots of met- met- metadata. So, RabbitMQ uses it to store users, bindings, policies. So it's usually bindings that you know really mm. mess things up. But as an embedded database, it works really well because it's just part of the runtime. There's nothing else to do. You know, it's like Go having an embedded database. It's at like that level. Mm-hmm. Again, not going too deep into that specific rabbit hole. The concept of an embedded database is really powerful when you see it used well. And when you see how far you can take it, it makes you think, why do I need this extra dependency? And there comes a point when you absolutely will, but maybe you can take it further. Maybe you can build something on top of that primitive, still keep it embedded and not need an external system. I mean, what would it look like if RabbitMQ needed PostgreSQL to store data? That'd be ludicrous, right? You would just like, like, what, (laughs) no. (laughs) But you know, it could if it needed to. So embedded database embedded database is a concept in the Erlang world. It's, you know, it's, it's normal. It's, you know, um, it works. Mm-hmm. And that made me think, why doesn't Phoenix have something like an embedded database? Like, why doesn't Phoenix, you know, run everything locally? I mean, can you have like still data working to store that? When you have applications, they're supposed to be stateless, and then when they restart, like you, you don't want, you know, you want to be able to scale them nicely. There are certain properties about that. But Livestream to me sounds like it it it's enabling a slightly different model for embedded databases, and that's what I find fascinating. The fact that you use SQLite because it's simple, because it's been proven technology, battle tested. It's it's a great idea. I think SQLite isn't it like the most popular SQL database in the world.
2: Oh yeah, it's on like it's billions are like uh, yeah it's crazy number of devices it's on every phone like
0: every phone every exactly fridge it's everywhere <laughs> has yeah. It. yeah it's crazy so it's already there it's already in all those systems so having live stream join it wow now we're talking i mean the, the scale just like the sheer amount of scale is just like mind mind-boggling you know if you think billions of devices that's, that's just crazy so mm-hmm. Before we go to billions, how about we start with like tens? So if you have 10 instances of the application, what would it look like if the data was replicated without it needing a complicated, another database cluster, which, you know, has like, as you mentioned, thousands and thousands of pages of documentation for good reason. Mm -hmm. What if it didn't have to be that complicated? And that is a very exciting proposition.
2: Yeah, that's kind of what I'm excited for, you know, like, and It's funny, like, I think, like, database engineers are, like, a unique kind of person where, like, Mm -hmm. if you get into, like, JavaScript, everything is always, like, there's some hot new framework every six six months, but, like, if you get into writing databases, it's, like, this thing might be popular in, like, five years. (laughs) Like, it takes so long to, like, build it up and whatnot, but that's kind of, like, what I see happening, or, you know, kind of the trajectory is just, you know, making it as simple as possible and making it more and more invisible, but essentially, yeah, if you have, you know, 10 nodes, you know, a lot of people wonder, like, why do I want to have Do I really need to have something replicated across the world? You know, is it, you know, it's fine just having this one instance here in Virginia. I think people don't appreciate that, you know, 200 milliseconds of latency, if you're going around to like from the US to Asia, you know, can really add up a lot and just makes the user experience pretty rough. And right now, yeah, it can be kind of a pain to replicate everywhere, but the end goal really is just to make it as easy to run, say 10 nodes as it is to run one and that you don't have to fuddle around mess around with like figuring out your primary and like how it replicates and all that stuff. Mm. You know, we essentially just want to make it so that, you know, as you scale up, scale down, whatever you want to do, uh, it just kind of works. And even even to the point too, where we're, you know, we're working on making it so that it works on like truly like serverless platforms, like forcel or like things that are like Dino, where it's, you know, pure web assembly, that it can actually pull in JavaScript and run that. Or like um, Cloudflare actually has like a, a SQLite piece as well. But you know, there's all kinds of ways where you can kind of like scale out and do different things. And if it can be as easy as it is when you just have a single node,
0: I think that's pretty compelling. That's interesting. Okay. So when you say, okay, you just mentioned Cloudflare and they're just like just I was thinking about the, their key value store. Is that SQLite by any chance? No. So they have their naming convention hours get messed up. <laughs> so they have durable objects, Sort I think
2: is D zero is what they call it. And then right. there's I think D1 is something they built on top of that which essentially has kind of a, uh, I think it's SQLite built on top of durable object, objects. Mm-hmm. And they wrote a blog post. I think that came out a couple of days after the the blog post I wrote. And they don't have a lot of details on the exact way it works, but it's essentially SQLite underneath and distributing mm-hmm. that. So we'll have to see, you know, as far as performance goes, there's, there's a lot of like nitty gritty details of like how, performance something is depending on where you put the data and how it interacts with different parts but i'm you know always excited to see more people getting into the
0: sqlite space yeah okay i'll check it out and also drop it in the show notes because that sounds really interesting okay are you aware of any applications that do what i'm thinking of doing with changelog which is use sqlite migrating from postgresql to sqlite replicating all the data and every single application instance having its own copy one of them being a primary today uh, and then having read replicas, do you know anyone doing this today?
2: Sorry, you're thinking like taking the data that's in SQL or sorry Postgres and
0: converting it in real time to
2: SQLite as primary.
0: Like not real time, like it's like one-off migration. We go from Postgres SQL. To oh, SQLite. like you do it
2: one time to switch over. Yeah, and then oh sure,
0: every application instance has the data. Obviously, we would need for that for the read replicas to be able to promote to masters, so that when we have like a fleet of ten, we do like a rolling update. You know, the mm. master just keeps moving around. And uh, eventually, you know, all instances get updated. I'm not sure how that would work in practice. There's like a lot of things which we need to improve when it comes to boot times. And we do certain things, which it means every app instance boots for, I think, 90 seconds today. And if you have, I know, five of those, that's, you know, a really long update. But do you know anyone doing something similar using SQLite instead of PostgreSQL?
2: I wouldn't say anybody doing like a, like moving around the primary. I don't know anybody doing that right now. You know, the, the Reba replication stuff is still kind of in beta or like it's, you know, mm-hmm. it's pretty early stage right now. There is someone running in production. Um, I just found out the other day. Wow. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, they're brave, brave soul. But no, I wouldn't say right now. And it's, I think making that, all that stuff really easy is going to be probably a couple months away. Making, you know, making it so it can move the, the primary. But that is the end goal.
0: Interesting. So, okay. That makes sense. And that gave me a different idea because I really (laughs) want to run this in production. I want to be that other brave soul that tries it and maybe not with changelog straight away, even though it's like very interesting to see how it would work at this scale, but maybe at a smaller scale. And I'm thinking WordPress. There's a lot of WordPress websites out there. They don't need MySQL. They have very little traffic, many of those. Mm -hmm. If they had the SQL, and there's always a single instance, if it goes down, they're usually on long running a hosts anyways they don't tend to be running on heroku or kubernetes and even if they are they have a persistent disk and if they don't there's like object storage but things get complicated so maybe for those types of applications sqlite with lightstream would make sense do you know anyone doing this today
2: yeah there's i mean there's a lot of people doing that kind of stuff where they they run a single instance i mean wordpress is a great example there's another guy named michael lynch who runs he has some applications, he just like keeps like porting stuff over from like Firestore or whatever and rewrites them and puts them in like SQLite and uses Lightstream and blogs about them. But he's done um stuff where he's taken an application that ran on Heroku and he could like run it with Lightstream and it would, you know, replicate in real time and then he'd like destroy it and then rerun it on fly.io. And since everything's on S3, it just magically works and comes back up. Mm-hmm. And he actually doesn't even run with a persistent disk behind, although I recommend that. <laughs> but he'll just like it just kills it and then just replays all the data uh, when it comes back up. And yeah, he did a blog post. I guess he pays like three cents a month for his his data storage.
0: Wow, that's crazy.
2: <laughs> the funny thing about S3 is like, this is another real hack around like Lightstream where, you know, Amazon, they really make money when you like download data from S3, you know, that you put up your data and then you kind of put it on CloudFront and like a bunch of people download it and it's pretty expensive mm-hmm. and they make gobs of cash. But if you just are only uploading, which is basically what backups do, the actual cost, like I think Ingress is free, the uh, actual per, per data or gigabyte, and then I think you pay per request, and it's like five, like yeah. ten thousandths of a cent or something like that every request. So if you're not doing constant writes, if you're only getting maybe you know a write every ten seconds or something like that every minute, then you know your cost can be super low, and you're just paying pennies per month for that kind of uh, replication.
0: That's exactly what we used to do. Every hour, we used to back up the entire database. And it was so yeah. cheap to do that, the <laughs> entire changelog database, that it didn't even make sense to have like deltas, diffs, write the headlock, like backups, none of that. Everything, like do a dump, put it there. No, no, sorry. Do a pg dump. Let, the, no, mm. let PostgreSQL, okay, let me just <laughs> reword that so it sounds correct. <laughs> do a database PostgreSQL dump. I don't think I can like the yeah. word dump is just like you know it's just 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 very tricky to work into a conversation uh, but okay this is about database okay so let's 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 get serious we would do a PG dump every hour send it to s3 and not worry about it because the cost was so little when you would mm-hmm. have to restore we would download it would be compressed so it'd go from one gig to maybe a hundred and something megabytes so a 10x compression it could, would compress really really well. And we would, you know, do that. And when we would have to restore once every in a blue moon, or when we would actually would test restores more often than we actually would have to restore, it was, again, very simple system. It worked. And we used that for a long time because when we set up clustering, we had issues. So with Fly IO, we don't have that because it's all managed. So, you know, we don't mm-hmm. have to worry about that. It's all just, you know, built in. But when we had to use... Operators in Kubernetes to do that replication and okay. configure things, things would just go wrong. You know, like the the write the head log would just get blocked and then you know replication would stop working and then the write the log would fill up the disk and we had like, you know, all sorts of like weird cases. And you know, I just that's just not a world I want to go back to.
2: Yeah, running state on Kubernetes is painful. I did that for years and it's it's not easy. <laughs>
0: did you run Postgres SQL on Kubernetes?
2: Uh, not Postgres. I worked at Influx Data. We wrote. Influx DB, and we ran a lot of the cloud stuff on Kubernetes. So it was all stateful, and there was, it was I a see. lot of uh,
0: YAML in my day. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, yes. Tell me about it. <laughs> OK. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah, so things, things are very different now. But uh, not having to deal with that complexity, it's so nice. And mm-hmm. when you start with a simple system, which SQLite definitely is, it just allows you to do things differently, and it it just gives you more headspace. It just gives some of that headspace back, and I'm really appreciative to that. Simple, simple things.
2: Yeah, and actually, like even backing up every hour is, I think, it's a great solution. We actually on the Lightstream website we have a kind of a page of alternatives and how you can do that. But even like a script for like, hey, you can just still do a cron based backup every hour. You know, you name your your files based on like a you know, a repeating kind of date format and I'll just overwrite the last one and you'll have kind of a rolling backup. And, you know, honestly, it works great. Like if you don't need the immediate point in time stuff with Lightstream or you want to run Lightstream and a cron based backup at the same time, like they're, they're not mutually exclusive. So Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm overly paranoid about data. So I tend to like back everything up, you know, twice. Twice. That's Yeah. Like I'll I'll do a cron based backup and Lightstream and run at the same time. Just, I mean, it's Mm -hmm. so cheap as well. And like, you know the the backup script, the cron script is like you know a couple of lines of code, so it's not hard.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. And do you back up to a different location than S three or is it a different bucket? What does I probably should, bucket? but no. <laughs> <laughs> <That's great. laughs> it's going up to S three. Okay. as well. Yeah, that's that's one thing to improve for sure, because that's that's when I was thinking, okay, S three is it's great. I'm sure it's going to be fine. But what if we can do just just let this one other place. And I know that mm-hmm. R3 from Cloudflare, we were thinking about that. And especially when it comes to like the trial and get out, let's just, you know, do like set up another backup location, see how well it works. And if we like it, maybe make that our primary backup location or, you know, whatever.
2: Yeah, and Backblaze has super cheap object storage. They're pretty good. GCP and Azure and all that. All the big
0: ones. All the big ones. Yeah, all yeah. the big ones, yeah. I know what you mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But Backblaze, that's that's a good shout out because I use Backblaze to back things up myself, even though I have ZFS and it never failed me, that file system, it's amazing. I still back everything up because, you know, what if it fails one day? Or what if an upgrade goes wrong? And they sometimes do, rarely, but they sometimes do. You don't want to find out.
2: Someone was asking on Lightstream recently if it could do Google Drive and Dropbox as a destination, which you can, technically, like you can... You can do like another file location. If you have this amount, you could just copy over to that. So, you know, that's a kind of a simple hacky way (laughs) to have an alternate location too.
1: This episode is brought to you by our friends at Sourcegraph. They recently launched a new feature called Code Insights. Now you can track what really matters to you and your team in your code base. Transform your code into a queryable database to create customizable visual dashboards in seconds. Here's how engineering teams are using Code Insights. They can track migrations, adoption, and deprecation across the code base. They can detect and track versions of languages or packages. They can ensure the removal of security vulnerabilities like Log4j. They can understand code by team, track code smells and health, and visualize configurations and services. Here's what the engineering manager at Prezi has to say about this new feature. Quote, As we've grown, so has a need to better track and communicate our progress and our goals across the engineering team and the broader company. With Code Insight, our data and migration tracking is accurate across our entire code base, and our engineers and our managers can shift out of manual spreadsheets and spend more time working on code. End quote. The next step is to see how other teams are using this awesome feature. Head to about.sourcegraph.com slash code-insights. This link will be in the show notes. Again, about.sourcegraph.com slash code-insights. And by Acuity, a new platform that brings fully managed Argo CD and enterprise services to the cloud or on-premise. The platform is a versatile Kubernetes operator for handling cluster deployments the GitOps way. And I'm here with Kelsey Hightower, angel investor and advisor to Acuity. Kelsey, why are you excited about Argo CD and what's happening here with Acuity?
3: When I think about Argo CD, it represents the transition from traditional CI CD, you know, you have a big server with a built in workflow engine, and you can only do what that system can do, whether it's Jenkins, Whether it's Spinnaker, you name it, those things are tend to be all in solutions and they're all predicated on having like their own built in workflows, UIs and ways of doing things. And then when I think about kind of the Argo CD, that whole open source movement kind of backed by the ideas we saw in the Kubernetes world, which was each of those steps is nothing more than just a step in a workflow. And after 10, 20 years of doing CICD, how best to represent those steps? And it turns out this whole container thing is probably the best way to have little snippets of logic sit at each of those steps in the workflow and then you can kind of exchange them and share them to build any pipeline you want. So the way to look at this is Kubernetes has never had a workflow engine or tool. And so when you think about kind of Argo workflow or Argo CD, which is kind of a specialized workflow, kind of attacking the how do you roll out software problem, that's the way I would think about it. So if you're all in on Kube and you like the Kubernetes ecosystem, then you kind of have a choice of workload types. And I would probably just say it's another workload type you can put in your toolbox. So if you got something that can benefit from a workflow engine and reuse the logic that you already have in containers, it kind of feels. like the perfect fit. The perfect fit. All right. Thanks, Kelsey.
1: Well, the next step is to
3: head to acuity.io slash
1: changelog. They are inviting all of our listeners to join the closed beta. Again, acuity.io slash changelog. Links are in the show notes.
0: So, we talked quite a lot about applications and the web, because that's that's my primary focus. But I know, and we've touched up on this, a lot of people use SQLite with mobile phones in the context of applications running on mobile phones. I mean, do you know anyone using Lightstream with a mobile application that uses SQLite?
2: I don't know anybody doing it on mobile right now. People have been interested in it how to like, you know, sync data down. The biggest thing with mobile is that you kind of have You really only have a single primary for your database and if you made it your phone that you could do it i guess but typically people have like a server and they need to sync data between and merge conflicts and stuff like that so something like the session extension is usually a better choice if you want to do something around that right right but it's an interesting idea i mean having an offline database locally and
0: all that okay now you mentioned something very important gdpr i know that many people think about that many people think about data locality the laws and rules that govern where data is stored where data is transferred to i think that in that world shrams too as well that's coming which are even more stricter rules around data and where it should reside uh, for european uh, users i see a future where data locality is going to be very important and the data will not be able to leave certain countries not even like in transit encrypted doesn't matter no 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 it will always stay in that country In that world, I think cell-based architectures, sharding, but even like cell-based architectures, local-based architectures will become very important. Mm -hmm. Do you see Lightstream playing a role in that world?
2: I mean, Lightstream, but also just like SQLite in general, I think the simpler you can make a primitive of where you store your data, you know, the easier it is to control where your data is. You know, if you have to spin up a bunch of, you know, if every, you know, region needs its own primary and replicas and all that and you're running on postgres that can be kind of painful if you have, mm-hmm. you know, 12 different clusters of postgres. But if you're just throwing a SQLite database on your application node, you know, that's a lot simpler to manage and kind of make sure that you know data doesn't need to transfer between your your database server and your application node when your mm-hmm. data is already on,
0: on your on your application node. So,
2: you know, I think it I think it makes sense. I think you could do it either way, but I you know, I like to think that SQLite's a bit simpler.
0: In that world, one thing which I cannot imagine is how would a team that works on this application manage, like, first of all, in their heads, the idea that there's N versions of that application, each with N data <laughs> stores. I mean, each yeah. each, each basically ha- has their own. So you are looking, I mean, you would need basically like to have like some sort of like a regional routing so you can get like to specific nodes and then that node only has data for that region, I think that can be mentally really challenging. How do you think about that, if at all? I mean, have you thought about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think if you really need the isolation, maybe you're setting up a separate VPC for everyone that you need to isolate for, and you can control if you're using like Amazon, for example. But yeah, I agree. I think the other interesting piece, like with the SQLite, like it seems like a small thing to like switch out SQLite and Postgres, or like conceptually at least, but when you have something like Postgres, a lot of times people put other things like caching in front of it, maybe like a Redis or a Memcache, and you end up having like a lot of external systems because you have this kind of slow data transfer, or like the latency between the uh, application server and the production server. So, you know, if you remove that latency and you move the data store directly onto the application node, you really don't need a caching layer. like you know, a lot of your data is probably going to be in memory anyway, just through like the, the OS page cache. So, you know, those lookups are super fast and you're, you know, you're spreading out your reads anyway, uh, through multiple nodes. So, you know, I think you're getting rid of not just Postgres, but a host of other systems that are kind of built around it. So I think like in the, the next, I guess, evolution of the SQLite world that I'd love to see is systems, That are traditionally other services other servers that are kind of built into sqlite and like a job system would be awesome like i keep wanting to like build a job system for sqlite where it just kind of works and it'll call your code and it'll just automatically do that thing Mm -hmm. i think there's a lot of architectures you can make for that could be a library built into your application but then you're kind of dependent on the programming language you're using Mm -hmm. it could be even an external system that thing calls into uh, a binary and runs jobs so because SQLite is a multi-process system or a multi-process database, so you could connect to it from multiple processes. So, I don't know. I think it's a really interesting space because you can really have kind of a single binary where everything kind of lives. Like if you're building Go or Rust or whatnot, uh, a couple other languages too. But yeah, just that you can ship a single file and that is what you're running. It's just like it's it's awesome,
0: <laughs> super powerful, definitely. So when you mentioned about job a job system in SQLite. I don't have the mental model that you do. Can you expand a little bit? What would that enable if SQLite had a job system?
2: I mean, the biggest thing with a job system, like, you know, a lot of people, you know, I come from the Go world mainly, and, you know, people kind of think, oh, I'll just shoot off a Go routine, which is kind of like a a thread or a a co-routine, and I'll do whatever this work external to, you know, maybe the request that requested it. But the Downside of that, obviously, is if your system dies, mm-hmm. then you lose all that stuff because it's all in memory. So the biggest piece for the job system is really just maintaining that state of like, hey, I went to this job to run, and then something will pick it up at some point in the future. You know, maybe you could schedule it in the future. Maybe it runs now, and then if it fails, you can retry it. You can kind of keep a log of that status of what that job is. So, you know, I think it's something like was it Sidekick or Rescue? I know uh, Mike Perum developed those, something like that, but like an embedded database layer and mm-hmm. i think that would kind of resolve a lot of a lot of issues people have with developing against just a sqlite database usually
0: jobs comes up so um i think that would help a lot okay how would that help how would the job system in sqlite help lightstream
2: um i don't know that it would help lightstream other than just add adoption for sqlite because you know jobs are just they're pretty critical to a lot of different systems you know if you need something that runs nightly mm. if you need something that runs every hour to do some kind of bulk processing you know, you really kind of need that job. It kind of sucks to rebuild that in your language if I just like make it a timer and hope that that's good enough. So that's that's kind of where I see it.
0: Okay. Okay. So you mentioned this piece of work that you're currently focusing on in the context of Lightstream, getting your read replicas, being able to promote them to primary writers. Are there other things that you're working on in the Lightstream space or things that you would like to be able to, to be able to work on?
2: I mean, that's mostly what I'm working on right now as far as we kind of want to make a layer where it's a bit agnostic to the underlying replication so we can have different models. You know, some people really want to have like a a synchronous replication model, so you really don't lose any data. But you do that at the cost of, you know, maybe slower writes, Mm -hmm. you know, because you have to confirm your write to a, a secondary every time you do a write. You know, an async model where maybe you have a bound of an upper time that you can lag behind on your replicas you know, a lot of things like that. I don't know if we go as far as like a raft model where you actually have distributed consensus. Mm-hmm. There's other tools uh, like RQLite, Lite that are good for that. So, you know, I think there's some interesting stuff in that space. And, you know, that's kind of my current focus. I would say there's one tool that I made. It's, uh, this is another hack. Yeah. <laughs> I think I feel like my whole career is just a bunch of hacks. Isn't it for all of us?
0: Uh, yeah, exactly. That's how you know it. You, have, you have a successful career. You've done a lot of crazy things, a few stuck, and they're Brilliant, brilliant hacks. Oh man, just to be clear, I have
2: so many <laughs> hacks that I just never took off. <laughs> but another one, another project I work on was it's called Postlight, and I think it has a ton of potential. I just don't have any time for it right now. Mm-hmm. Where one big issue that people have with running SQLite in production is that, like, if you use a command line tool, like I typically use, like a command line SQL tool, or even with Postgres, so I use the pgSQL, and you just you know SSH in, running commands. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how I work. But I know a lot of people like having a GUI around. That stuff. And the big problem, obviously, with SQLite is that you can't SSH over to it and run a GUI with it. Yeah. So PostLite actually it, it runs a proxy around your SQLite database and it listens via a Postgres protocol protocol. So you can actually connect your Postgres tools, your GUI tools, to your mm-hmm. SQLite database on a remote host through that. And I'll just I'll dig into the implementation because I think it's really cool. So the the hack around this that makes it work. So the biggest issue, you know, people kind of tried to do this a little bit in the past, but the biggest issue is that when a, a GUI tool connects, it tries to get like all the PG catalog information. So like all the table names and the columns and whatnot, and that obviously doesn't exist in SQLite. So what PostLite does is it actually, so you can do a thing where you attach databases onto other databases in SQLite. So you can kind of, kind of query between the two. So what it does is it actually attaches an in-memory database to your database and then creates a, and it's called PG Catalog. And then it attached virtual tables onto that. So they're just like fake tables that you know Postlight generates for you. Uh, so you can list out the databases and columns and whatnot. And yeah, so it essentially just like hacks together this PG Catalog for your SQLite database and then communicates over the PG nice. wire protocol. So yeah, it's a fun little tool. And I think it has a ton of potential and it actually works, but I mean, it's just not well tested.
0: Is this somewhere like on a GitHub or like a repo that people can go and check it out?
2: Yeah, yeah. If you go to github.com
0: slash Ben B. Johnson slash postlight. So P O S T L I T. Okay. We'll see if anyone, uh, if anyone of the listeners is interested, you know, have a look. I'll put it in the show notes.
2: Yeah. If anybody wants to contribute or maintain it or, you know, hit me up. That's
0: a good one. That's a good one. Okay. So is there anything that you would like to know about the changelog setup? Infrastructure, how I'm thinking about things, where I would like to take things, why, anything that you know would be interesting for Lightstream, maybe.
2: Yeah, um, I mean, I think that like you guys have an interesting setup. You know, you got you're still in Kubernetes, right? Are you running Kubernetes in Fly or not anymore? Okay, you're totally off of it.
0: We migrated from wow. Kubernetes to Fly.io. Yeah. Yeah,
2: that was a lot of that was a lot of YAML you just tossed in the bin. Oh yes, <laughs> oh yes. Well, I mean, I think I'd be curious then. Okay, I had had in my head that you're running Kubernetes on a fly, which would be impressive, Mm. Uh, which I think does work actually, but that seems like overkill. I guess, what is your goal? I know a lot of the stuff you guys build, you have like an intellectual curiosity. You want to be engaged and know the actual system, but like, are you looking to like, in addition to that, are you looking to like reduce latency, reduce like configuration overhead, like just make it easier, make it simpler, I guess. I guess what would be like your pain points that you guys have right now?
0: So I think right now, I don't think it's so much as a, of a pain point, it's more like an improvement that we could do. So I mentioned the slow boot times of applications and there's there's only one instance right now. So we would want to go from one instance to multiple application instances. But if every application instance, when there's an update takes 90 seconds to boot, that's a bit too long. They do a bunch yeah. of things that they, that they don't need to. So we will be looking at improving the boot times. Mm-hmm. But then you have multiple applications and we still have the CDN in front. And that's that's great, right? Because um, we just need to be in so many locations. The application is very read heavy. Mm-hmm. But our inter- integration with the CDN hasn't always been great. And I think we talked about it in episode 50, even like during our flying migration, there was like a misconfiguration of our CDN, which was as a result of using the UI incorrectly, mm-hmm. the CDN UI. So there was that episode. But just simplifying the way we do things and basically yeah. letting sharing it with with the world like right? this is what this is what we did yeah. this is why we did it we start with the why and this is how we did it so there's a pull request there's a story there's even like an episode like this one where we talk mm-hmm. you know to the ones that you know helped us gave us the idea so i'm wondering what could we do better than we do like literally how do we improve what we have today? How do we make it simpler? How do we make it, in this case, boot faster? How can we have more than one application? Because before we had, before every single request ran through the CDN, we, the website would be down when the application instance would be down. And we could only Mm. run one because we had block storage and there was like write once. Uh, So it was, it wasn't like write many. And that meant that we could only have one instance running, but now on fly, now we have PostgreSQL, now we have actually the object storage. That's the most important one. All the media is stored on yeah, the object yeah. storage. In S3, it's no longer stored on like a volume, which is attached. And that's mm-hmm. like a huge, actually, that's the first step towards having a number of application instances. But then there's a database. And in Fly, if we spin multiples, they will run in different you know, um, zones, in different, um, do they call them regions in Fly? I forget the exact name. Yeah, regions. Yeah. So they will run like, you know, in multiple regions and then the primary will be the database primary will be in one. So I'm thinking, is there something we could do about the data so that, you know, it's it's local, it's faster? And that's why, you know, I was curious to talk to you about to see where SQLite and Lightstream is. And I think it's getting there. There's like this this first like hurdle for the application to mm-hmm. not have to go down when there's an update. But I'm feeling good about that. I have to say, like I like how you think about it. I like how Methodically you go you know over that improvement. And I know it's going to take a while, especially if there's something that you can trust. And um that's yeah. why I'm curious to see where do you see Livestream going so that I know, like, does does it match what I'm thinking?
2: Yeah. I mean, ideally, honestly, our goal, at least inside of Fly, like all this, all this stuff is going to be open source. But you know, the benefit of me being at Fly is we can tightly integrate it as well into everything we're doing. We essentially just want to give you like a, a directory on the the instance that you have and you just write to it like a regular SQLite database. Like you don't have to know anything about it and it just kind of magically works Mm. and then it's instantly or, you know, given the speed of light instantly on all your other instances at the same time. So it's not that you have to like think, oh, I need to configure this and I need to set the number of replicas and I need to configure the primary and I need to do all these different things and I need to set backups and whatnot. Essentially, you just set a flag on your deploy and say, hey, I want this directory, this magic directory and it just handles it all for you. That's pretty so really cool. That's I guess from the the grand, you know, idea of what we're doing, that's that's the goal. And you know, we want to make it work on everything really. Like even if you're running Kubernetes and you want to run SQLite on Kubernetes, you know, it should work there as well. So, you know, hopefully we just simplify the stack as we go. And as far as like what you guys are doing, I think that like the CDN is a big thing, like moving stuff up to object storage, especially large files mm-hmm. um is great. I know there's some kind of some CDN stuff that we do. Like if you can serve it straight out of the instances, or we pull off static files and we can serve those separately. Mm-hmm. That might simplify your stack on Fly. I would say, do you know the startup time stuff? Is that part of? Are you guys deploying as an app? Or I don't know if you looked at the the new machines stuff that Fly has.
0: I've seen the new machines. We're not using those. We're still deploying as containers. So we build a container image and then it pulls down the container image. Oh, actually, we, we publish it with with like Fly. And I think there's. There's some improvements to be done there, but the boot times, it's actually the application trying to still synchronize things, And that's something which I'm going to look into like over the coming weeks. So the application, it's still thinking that it needs to back things up to S3. That's initial logic, which we had because on boot time, it would say, do I have Mm -hmm. to back things up? And it would, it would do that uh, in terms of synchronizing files, but it no longer needs to do that because everything is on S3 right now in terms of the static files.
2: Yeah. Uh, That makes sense. Yeah. If you look at the machines as well, I mean, once you get, you know, application side startup latency going or worked out, the machine stuff really is snappy. Like you're essentially like the apps, the fly apps kind of manage your scaling and like Mm -hmm. are kind of a higher level layer. And the machines are really like, I want to boot up an instance, like a specific instance in this region and I'll put my application on there and I want to, you know, bit of a specific. And since somewhere else as well. You get a lot more fine-grain control, but they're also a lot faster. Mm-hmm. So you get, you know, sub-second startup times from those. So interesting. Um, those are pretty nice. Yeah, and we just released those. I think in the last week or so. Yeah, it's so. very
0: recent. Okay, I will. I will check those out because I've seen them being mentioned, but I didn't have time to dig into them. But that sounds really, really interesting. Okay.
2: Yeah, I think it's it's a cool thing. Like if you don't need that higher level like management of um, deploying the app and scaling, like auto scaling and all kinds of stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be like a great option just to get super snappy
0: machines. Yeah, I think so. So one more crazy idea, and then we go for yeah. the wrap-up. What would it look like if we didn't use a CDN and we would have many application instances all running on fly across all the regions which for we have most users in. They'll be close to our users. The application itself would be basically like like a CDN edge location it would cache everything that like it that it serves in terms from the object storage mm-hmm. maybe and the data would be also local from the database like lots of reads but everything will be local so we don't have to have a primary and going you know from the edge location to the primary so all the reads are, are local do you imagine that working
2: oh yeah i think that that's sort of the goal is with fly as well it's like we kind of want to get rid of the cdn more or less like mm-hmm. you know you don't really need a cdn if you have your application node's running at the edge. They can serve those static files themselves. Or, you know, even today, I mean, you can run Postgres and have replicas around the world as well. So, yeah, I think that that would totally work. Mm. It's great, you know, if you, got, you guys have a very international audience as well. So, like, you know, having servers down in South America or Asia, Europe, Australia, like, I think that'd be Africa. would be great. So.
0: Yeah, I mean, um, I was just looking, I think... When I do the intros for the episode, I check a couple of interesting facts out and I just mentioned them in the intros. And two episodes ago, I was looking at all the CDN edge locations that serve traffic. It was 93 in the last seven days. So 93 edge locations served. Oh wow. Yeah. Some amount <laughs> of traffic is a lot of locations. But there's always like the first like 10 or 20, which are the busiest. And then you have like a very nice like small tail it's a, it's a short tail yeah which means that there's not many you know like from the I don't know the last 50 or so regions and I think there's a c- couple of like important edge locations and then the rest you know it's 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 good enough it's close enough it's still like milliseconds it's not seconds so yeah yeah <laughs> but the one thing which I, I'm I still I'm still I in my head is not clear if the application is basically acting as a cache essentially for the object storage. When the application gets restarted, the instance, then all the caching which it had, it will disappear.
2: Yeah. If you don't have, well, are you doing persistent disks on
0: those instances? Or are they ephemeral? So they're all ephemeral. We don't use any persistent disk. but that's interesting because if we did.
2: Yeah, you could do it persistent. Yeah. I mean, you could always just pull down the cache again, but yeah, <sighs> because you do have, there is going to be a limit on how much you can store on the ephemeral drives. I think it's, I don't know that we publicize it. You can test it out. I'm sure. But I don't think it's it's a stable <laughs> number.
0: <laughs> no, no, no. I think pretty sure we would want persistent disk for that. And then, but the disks, the persistent disks are only there to basically persist the cache, so that when we when we hmm. restart the instance, we reattach the disk and we still have that that previous cache. We don't start with an empty cache with a cold cache because that would that would not be good for even for like the object storage bill.
2: Yeah, I mean, I would definitely look at like machines and then attached volumes on there, and then. You yeah, know, I think that's a great way to, to make it super snappy. They restart fast
0: and that'd probably be the way to go. Now I'm probably dreaming. While I was like kind of dreaming at the beginning, <laughs> now I'm like way ahead in uh, the future. <laughs> all right, Okay, coming back into the present, as we prepare to wrap up, I'm thinking, which is your key takeaway, Ben, for our listeners, the ones that stuck with us all the way to the end?
2: Sure, yeah. Um. I think key takeaway is, that you know, if you're looking to simplify your stack, you know, I think that you know, in, in any technology, in Lightstream included, like you know, it's always an evolution. So, I think if you're interested in simplifying your stack, doing you know, working with an embedded database, just having that really snappy, fast back and forth between your application and your database, I would love to have people try it out. Like, give it a try. Maybe it doesn't fit for maybe your big, huge application that you know some Fortune 500 companies running on, but there's you know, thousands, millions of applications that don't have those same requirements that can do something simpler and you know we're kind of we're continually improving and revamping and you know making it better over time and the feedback from the community really kind of drives a lot of that Mm -hmm. so i say you know jump in reach out to me i would love to hear people's feedback on their experience and you know what they're looking for for sure
0: there's more feedback coming your way ben i'm very excited to try live stream (laughs) in a couple of situations but i'm especially thinking about wordpress i don't think many people know this but they will find out in the next few seconds. I still host maybe 20 something WordPress websites and I've been doing so for over a decade now. And uh, I'm thinking of uh, improving that infrastructure. And I'm thinking of giving SQLite and Lightstream a go with WordPress to see what it looks like.
2: Yeah, I'd love to hear your feedback on it. I think it's a great fit.
0: Well, thank you very much, Ben, for today. I had a lot of fun talking to you. You just gave me so many ideas. And uh, I'm looking forward to what you do at Fly. I think it's a great combination. Kurt is just building an amazing team. I mean, I cannot imagine a better place for Changelog to be running on. And I'm very much looking forward to what we do in the, re- in the second half of this year. And 2023, oh boy, oh boy. Like, yeah. even, even my dreams aren't big enough for what is to come, I'm <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, keep
2: getting bigger. No, thanks for having me on. It's been great talking to you.
0: Thank you, Ben. Until next time.
2: Oh yeah, have a good one.
0: Thank you for tuning into another episode of Shipit. Check out our other podcasts for developers at changelog.com slash master. You can connect with like-minded developers via changelog.com slash community. Thank you Fastly for the worldwide low latency changelog.com. Our listeners love those blazing fast MP3s. Your beats are awesome, Breakmaster Cylinder. That's it for this week. See you all next week. One last thought. Make time for team offsets, especially if your team is remote. We just had hours and it was beyond amazing. You are a crazy good bunch Camille, Guillaume, Helder, Jean-Francois, Sam, Tongi, and Tom. I wish the same good time for you and your team.